anyhow, uh, we do miss you all, and we're so happy and honored to be here. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Help us to love what you love, hate what you hate. Increase our love and devotion to Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask this because we are needy and dependent upon you for all things. And we ask this also for your glory and also for our extreme joy. Amen. Outlaw Pastor Rob Bell shakes up the Bible Belt. That was the, the title of this article that John Blake wrote for CNN. I know that's some of your all's favorite news site. <clears throat> Rob Bell, and this is kind of old news, but, but the same things apply today. But Rob Bell's a rock star Christian, if you don't know who he is. Quasi-Christian, maybe we, we should say. Celebrity who wrote the best-selling books, Velvet Elvis and Love Wins, and he, where he denied the existence of hell. Anyhow, John Blake writes of Bell, he's a rapid-fire speaker who can go from delivering comic one-liners one minute to in-depth discourses on first-century Jewish hospitality customs the next. He's a compulsive reader, and his dazzling erudition was on display during a Q&A session inside the theater before the show. There's another side to Bell's ministry that was on display, one that endears him to so many fans. At the end of the Q&A, a young man raised his hand and told Bell he was struggling with his faith. He was awaiting the birth of his child, but a doctor recently told him and his wife that their baby probably wouldn't survive. Is he wrong for being angry with God? Rob Bell was not scared of those questions. An uneasy silence descended on the small pre-show group, which had been laughing at some of Bell's comic asides. But Bell didn't offer any preacher platitudes. He told the man he had some tough times ahead. He spoke from personal experience. Bell was driven from the evangelical world in part because he was open about his doubts. He lost his church and some friends. Many of his fans are on the same journey. They don't want to abandon their faith, but they have questions the traditional church can no longer answer. Bell walked closer to the man and told him he could give him no easy answers, but he could tell him to avoid people who will try to comfort him by quoting scriptures like Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. And by telling him his loss was somehow part of God's mysterious will. Anyone who quotes Romans and says it's all part of a plan, they can't walk with you, Bell said. He told the man to look for people who will be present with him and offer him solidarity, not solutions. He said he would return to Atlanta in the years ahead and they would meet again and somehow things would be better for him. All the best to you, he said quietly as the man nodded in appreciation. The article ends uh, this way. In talking about Rob Bell fans, John Blake writes, perhaps they're being deceived. Uh, Some fans received some notes before entering the theater from a protester and a skeptic who sees Rob Bell as a heretic and asked the Rob Bell fans as they were going in to listen to Rob Bell to ask God himself to show them what is true and what is not true about what he's saying. Then the author of this article says, so what is truth? And he finishes with this statement. Maybe a certain type of heresy is just what is needed. You see, Rob Bell is smooth, He is likable. He is full of plausible arguments. But did you notice what was missing in that article from Rob Bell's teaching and the emphasis there and what he, the advice he gave to this man who's suffering? What was missing was a clear and unmistakable explanation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. He didn't point this sufferer to Jesus. 
people don't need a certain type of heresy. They need to know Christ and so stand firm in Christ. I think we could state the main point of our passage this way. Genuine gospel ministry overtly loves people to Christ so that they might listen to the teaching and admonitions and so stand firm in Christ. The goal of the Christian life is to know Christ and stand firm in Christ. Now, Paul's written this letter out of a desire to see the Colossian church mature in their faith, and he knows that this can only happen if they clearly see the glory of Christ's person and work, if they keep this truth central to their lives. And so Paul thanked God for their salvation in chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. He prayed that they might stand firm in their convictions in 9 through 14. He focused their attention on the absolute glory and preeminence of Christ in 15 through 20. He reminded them that they owe their reconciliation with God to this glorious one in 21 to 23. And then in 24 to 29, he gave them reasons why they should listen to him. And his main argument there, if you remember, was that he suffers and strives for them in Christ. So today in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he brings this introduction to his letter to a close and reminds them that he is for them and that he has their best interests in mind. He overtly loves them to Christ that they might know Christ, that they might stand firm in Christ. And that's going to be the rough outline that we're going to be working from this morning to walk through this text and hopefully gain a deeper understanding of its riches. Uh, So first, we could say that genuine gospel ministry seeks to overtly love people to Christ. Verse 1 says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Genuine gospel ministry overtly loves people to Christ. That's one of its aims. See, Paul wants these believers to know how great a struggle he has for them, even though he's never met them face to face. But why? Why does he want them to know of his struggle for them? Well, based on the context here, it's because Paul wants them to pay very attention pay very careful attention to the contents of his letter. That's why he says that. And and why does he want them to listen to him? Because he wants them to mature and grow in Christ. And why does he want them to grow and to mature in Christ? Because he cares for them. He loves them even though he hasn't seen them. Because of their common bond in Christ. You see, he's building a rapport with them. He's establishing this personal relationship with them. Uh, He's not way up there as apostle, and they're way down here as those to whom the apostle ministers to. When Paul met people, that's not the categories he was thinking of. Oh, you are one who I am to minister to. The brothers and sisters in Christ on equal standing before the Lord. And so as such, he longs to see them thrive in their love for Christ. Love wants what is best, and what is best is Christ. Paul wants them to listen to him because it's so important that they keep Christ and his gospel central. But my point here for the moment is simply to note that Paul doesn't, he doesn't just dump information on them apart from a relationship. He loves them to Christ. Telling people facts about Jesus Christ is really only one aspect of the ministry equation. The other aspect is loving them with Christ's love. Living Christ before them, or as Ephesians 4.15 says, speaking the truth in love. And so Paul overtly, visibly, intentionally loves them to Christ. He doesn't hide from them the fact that he's been striving for their good. He, he tells them. 
He's intentional in telling them. Every jot and tittle in Scripture is there for a purpose. And when we study the Scriptures, we're always to be asking the question, why is this here? Why did Paul say this? Why does the Holy Spirit include this in the canon of Scripture when he could have included a bazillion other things? But he concluded this. He's intentional. He tells them. He's given them proof that he loves them and has their best interests in mind. Think about it. Has anyone ever told you, hey, just wanted you to know that I have regularly been praying this specific prayer for you? If so, how'd that make you feel? Feels good, doesn't it? At a minimum, you know that they've been thinking of you. And then what if they gave you a card and in that they write you a long note encouraging you in various ways? It's nice to get those, isn't it? It takes thought and time and energy to do that. And then if someone says uh, they did something for you, that's even better. There's been times where people have brought us Uh, made us a meal, given us food that they thought we might like and enjoy, that conveys even more that they love us, right? That's overt love. And Paul's aim is not only overt love, but again, that they listen to him. Because if they listen to him, then they're going to be helped in the faith. And that's what is best for them. Brothers and sisters, we need to love people to Christ. We need to understand that loving people is an integral aspect to a successful ministry. It's absolutely essential. Teddy Roosevelt was right because it was in the scriptures first, but he was right when he said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I've had the unfortunate experience of being someone's ministry project. The person hadn't proven themselves to me, didn't care to get to know me, build a relationship with me, find out what my trials and struggles were, didn't care about my concerns, but insisted on inflicting me with their wisdom. Maybe you, from your chuckles, I'm guessing you've experienced some, being someone's ministry project before. Parents, this is really important. Paul's example is good for us. Yes, we are the parent. We can command our children. But unless they know they're loved, they're not really going to listen to us. I think it's helpful then to ensure that parents spend more time loving their children than disciplining If you find yourself in that rut, you're disciplining all the time, not having enough time to love, then go somewhere where you don't have to discipline. Go out to a big grass field. Don't take them into a china shop. Have fun with your kids. Make sure that they know that that they are important to you. And then when you do need to discipline, they're going to be much more willing to receive your instruction and your counsel. Husbands and wives, same principle holds true here, as it does in any situation that we're seeking to minister to anyone. If our desire is that they mature in Christ, that that's what our desire is for them, and we think that we have something to say that's going to help them mature in Christ, then we better be loving them well. We should sacrifice for them. We should strive for them as we speak the truth to them. And so gospel ministry, genuine gospel ministry, seeks to overtly love people to Christ. I'm not used to this dry weather anymore. Parched. Second, gospel ministry seeks to overtly love people to Christ so that people might know Christ. Let's read verse one again through verse three. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Okay, Paul's name is Christ. He doesn't love in order to endear them to himself as the ultimate end. 
but to the greater end of endearing them to Christ. It's not about Paul, but about Christ. Paul's saying here that he wants these believers to know that he is for them so that their hearts may be encouraged. There's, is, there's clear purpose in Paul's statement here in choice of words. He wants them to know of his struggle for them so that, right, with the purpose that these three things might happen. First, his design in telling them of his struggle for them is that their hearts might be comforted, right? He wants their inner man, the center of their being, to be encouraged, to be strengthened. Paul wants them to know that he is for them so that they'll heed his call to keep Christ the central focus of their lives and their theology so that they'll listen to him as he tells them to make Christ the big deal of their life. But again, we see that Paul is an encourager. He wants those he loves to be strengthened in Christ. He wants them to be strong in their faith. Are you an encourager? Is that your aim? When you meet people, is that what's going on in your mind, that you're seeking to intentionally encourage others in their love for Jesus Christ? To encourage others requires that you think of them, and it generally requires intentionality. Love seeks to encourage in Christ. And Paul can only do this because of his own love for Christ. You see, his love for Christ is, is fueling this encouragement to Christ. He can't help himself. This is just a bubble over of his own love for Jesus Christ. You can't pass on what you don't have. Second, his aim in telling them of this struggle for them is that their hearts might be knit together in love. Now, the translation of this Greek phrase is actually disputed, so you might have something different than what the ESV, which I'm preaching from, has. But most English translations are going to be pretty close to the ESV. But many scholars believe the phrase should be translated as having been taught in love instead of knit together in love, having been taught in love. That word is translated as to teach in the ESV in Acts 19.33 and 1 Corinthians 2.16 and then also in various places in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But then in Colossians 2.19, just the next chapter over, it's translated as knit together. And there, that particular context, the analogy of, of the church to a physical body is, is what's going on there. And so to teach there wouldn't make much sense. So it's knit together there. But here, the idea of to teach in love, I think actually fits well with the context of understanding and wisdom in Christ. But the idea is of having been taught in love the one way to translate it, and then united in love or knit together in love are, are complementary. As one commentator put it, living in a loving and forgiving community will assist growth in understanding and vice versa. As truth is confirmed in practice and practice enables truth to be seen in action and so to be fully grasped. So you see how those two translations are Complimentary. Let me say that again. I think it's so helpful. Living in a loving and forgiving community will assist growth in understanding and vice versa. As truth is confirmed in practice, and practice enables truth to be seen in action and so to be fully grasped. Churches where hearts have been taught, instructed in love are also churches where hearts are united or knit together to each other in love. Paul wants these believers united together in the love of Christ. See, one of the means that God gives to ensure the perseverance of the saints is the church. Local bodies of believers where people love and encourage one another in the faith. Places where people had been taught the truths about Jesus Christ in love. And so in love, they exalt Jesus Christ to his proper preeminence. 
And when that teaching is mingled with love, there will be love. But there's not also going to be love, there's also going to be unity. Unity around teaching the truth in love. True believers love Jesus Christ and they love all others who love him. Christian churches then are to be love factories. Just lots of love going on in solid churches. That's why we harp on the one another commands. Our love for Jesus Christ should fuel our interaction with others. Our love for Christ is the root. And the practice of the one another commands is the fruit of that love. Do you love Jesus? Do you love the saints? Brothers and sisters, we need to strive to keep our focus on Christ's person and work. We can do nothing as, as far as true ministry goes if our love for him takes a back seat to anything. And then third, Paul's aim in making sure they know he is for them is that they would know Christ. And this is Paul's real target here, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. All of these terms that he used here are, are all terms working towards emphasizing the abundant blessings that are found in understanding and knowing Christ. Right? He's all the riches, all wealth, every good thing is found in knowing Christ and in full assurance of that understanding. When there's an abundance of certainty or when there is a strong conviction in the importance and the reality of the knowledge of the mystery of God, which is Christ, then this position or situation is where all riches, all wealth is found. Do you believe this? Is this your greatest concern for people? Do you teach and encourage that Christ is where every good thing is found? Or do you encourage people to seek material wealth and blessing as a place where ultimate joy is found? Maybe not verbally, but by your actions. Or political victory, or good physical health, or status in society. What is your life preaching? See, Paul wants these believers to have their hearts filled with all the riches and encouragement and love that come from having a right and true understanding of Christ's person and Christ's work. A right and a sure understanding of the gospel. So his aim is these three things, encouragement, unity, and love, being taught in love, and the wealth of spiritual riches that come from having a certainty about who Christ is. That's Paul's aim. He is for them. He wants what is best, and this is what is best. Which is why then he, he just goes off again on the glories of Christ. I, I love the book of Colossians. It's so, it's so wonderful, and this, and this is why it's wonderful to us. Um, now here he doesn't spend as much time as he did in chapter one, verses 15 through 20. But it's the same sentiment and almost a summary echo that should take us back to Colossians 1, 15 through 20, where it says of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By all things, the world was created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones, dominions, ruler, authorities, all things are created through him and for him. All that, all that, all that glory there. This is a summary echo of that. Christ, in whom are hidden, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Think about that. That's really an astounding statement. Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's an all-inclusive statement. He uses all these 100% words that you're not supposed to use relationally, and yet you can hardly ever use in anything in this life, and Paul uses them all right here. 
Okay, now if you remember the mystery of God is the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and that he's also the Gentile Messiah. This was all true all, all along, all the time. The nations would be reconciled to their creator God in and through this one, but no one know, knew exactly for sure how this was gonna happen. But now this mystery has been revealed and this mystery is Christ himself. He is the one that is revealed. He existed all along, now he's been revealed. He's a long way to Messiah. In his, in his death, Right, it was his death that reconciled people to God. Isn't that amazing? This glorious one that's proclaimed in 15 through 20 of chapter 1, who's so high, you just think, man, he's all up there. That glorious one came down, and through his physical death that's emphasized there in the last part of chapter 1, is what reconciled you, if you're a Christian, to the creator of the world. Isn't that on, that, that's amazing. And so hidden in him as the mystery of God, is all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge typically deals with facts and information, truths. Wisdom deals with putting to good use those facts and information, those truths. You see, the spiritual people of the day of, of the Colossians, they were saying that Christ wasn't enough. They were saying that there were other paths to knowledge and wisdom that, that were necessary, other things that they needed to learn. Paul just shuts all that down right here. He shuts it all down. And says, there's only one thing that you need to know. There's only one thing that is necessary. That is the person of Jesus Christ. His person and his work, those things are intimately connected. You can't separate the two. You don't need the knowledge of the world. Despite what everybody's saying, you got to read this. You got to read this book. Oh, man, this guy's really, you, you don't know anything until you read this book. You don't need the wisdom of the world. You don't need to be up on the latest political theories and, and issues and philosophies. You don't need to have a thorough understanding of Socrates or Aristotle. When it comes to the most important things in life, that is eternal salvation, sanctification, glorification, Christ is all. This is an all-inclusive statement. We don't need the erudite smoothness of Rob Bell. We don't need his slick critique of organized religion that gets everybody fired up. God's not impressed that he is well-read or that he's a surfer or that he dresses cool or that he's a good speaker and he's eloquent. If he doesn't preach Christ, if he's not proclaiming and exalting Christ, if he's not proclaiming Christ's person in his work, if he isn't pointing people to the reality that only Christ is worthy of worship, the truth that all things exist to bring him glory and, and that his death on the cross, his, his shed blood for his people, reconciled to himself all things, all the awesome truths we learn in, in chapter one, if he's not doing that, then he is leading people astray, period. And he does not love those that he is leading astray. He might think he does, but he's not loving them. He isn't for them. It's proof that he is in it for himself. Christ is the wisdom of God. Christ is God. All of God's knowledge and wisdom is stored up, a hidden treasure in Christ. Everything you wanted to know about God is found in Christ. He is the revelation of God. To know Christ, which these Colossian believers do, is to have all the knowledge and wisdom that is necessary in this life and in the life to come. Christianity is so simple, isn't it? Christianity it is so simple to understand the basics of Christianity. It, it is a simple religion, but it is not simplistic. Do you want to grow in wisdom? 
Know Christ. Know the Jesus of the Bible, of the scriptures. See, wisdom and Christ are synonymous here. Are you single and looking to get married? Do you need wisdom in whom to marry? Then pursue Christ. Keep him central to your heart. Grow in Christ-likeness, and you're going to grow in wisdom. If you want to get married, though, more than you want to grow in Christ, then you're on really shaky ground. Do you need wisdom in your marriage? Then pursue Christ. Keep him central to your marriage. If your marriage is, is struggling, refocus. Don't let other things crowd out Christ from the marriage. Ensure Jesus Christ is your chief priority, the hub of the activity of your home. You got big decisions to make? Pursue wisdom. Pursue Christ. Listen to him. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Jesus is the greater Solomon. Solomon was wise, but Jesus is wisdom. Amen? Does your life need direction? Are you kind of flailing around a bit? You don't know what you're doing with your life. You want to make sure your life counts? Kind of hitting, you know, midlife crises area? Pursue wisdom. Pursue Christ. Don't read How to Win Friends and Influence People or Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Don't resort to to tarot cards, Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul's for them. He's striving, he's struggling on their behalf. And he tells them of this struggle so that they'll listen to him, so that they'll pay attention to him. And, And this is what he wants them to hear. This is his message. Christ is wisdom. Christ is glory. Christ is the preeminent one. Right? Find encouragement and comfort and unity and certainty in Christ and Christ alone. Anyone who downplays the centrality of Christ, the significance of Christ, or the exclusivity of Christ is a charlatan. Rob Bell and all his ilk, they're charlatans. He's not giving people what they need. He's not for them. He's not giving them what is best. Christ is best. So genuine gospel ministry seeks to overtly love people to Christ that they might know Christ. Lastly, genuine gospel ministry seeks to overtly love people to Christ, that they might know Christ, that they might stand firm in Christ. This is the end game of Paul's concern here. Verse four says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Right? Paul says all of this so that these precious saints may not be deceived by smooth talkers by these plausible arguments, that is, persuasive speech or spacious arguments. Since the beginning, all the way back in Genesis 3, since Satan's plausible arguments in the Garden of Eden, Satan's seed has been using the same old tactic. They don't come up with anything new. They just kind of repackage the same, the same same old tactic. Their presentations are slick, smooth sounding to the ear. They really sound smart. And they seem loving, profound, not like all these other fuddy-duddies. And their knowledge is impressive. They use big words, and they, and they say just enough things that ring true or seem true that they deceive many. But don't be deceived. 
If you're hearing teaching that you're unsure of, or you're reading a book that, that you're unsure of, or someone gives you a book, or whatever, all you need to do is ask yourself the question, where is Christ? Where's Christ in all this? Is Christ receiving his proper glory here? Is Christ the main event? Is his preeminence being proclaimed? If not, flee. You don't have to debate him. You don't have to win the debate. Just get out of there. Look at Mormonism. They say a lot of good things. They're even going to talk about grace and truth and salvation, all these things that we talk about, same things. They're going to, talk about, they're going to use those same words differently, but they're going to use the same words. And they're going to talk about all kinds of things that sound really good. They abound with plausible arguments. But then when you start talking to them about Christ, and you start pressing in on Christ's person and his work, taught in the scripture, something's off. Something's just not, not quite right. Jesus isn't exalted. He is not the purpose of all creation. He's not the reason why they exist. Jehovah's Witnesses are the same. Jesus is kind of important. He's a God, but he's not preeminent. The whole fullness of deity doesn't dwell in him bodily. And they have many slick arguments but Jesus isn't exalted to his proper place. Even those who would say that they're evangelical, even those who would claim to be in our camps, they can be confusing and heretical. Sometimes I'll hear somebody talk about church and evangelism and church growth methods and speaking in tongues and whatever the latest fad is that's taken the, you know, the, uh, the Christian celebrity circuit by storm, on and on and on we goes. And I don't have time to read everything. Sometimes I'm a slow reader. I'm not up on, on all these latest fads, and I might not be able then to, to put my finger on exactly why their plausible arguments seem off. But then all I need to do is just investigate and ask a simple question. Where is Jesus here? Where's Jesus in all of this? Where is Christ's person and work? Is it central? Is it the thrust of what's being said? Is my Savior being proclaimed? Is the gospel clearly articulated? Is Christ's person work highly exalted? If the answer is no, then I need to flee. That's the case with Rob Bell and all those like him. Rob Bell is proclaimed. You notice that in the beginning of that article? He, he's lifted up. It's like, man, look at Rob Bell. He's so smart. He did this. And not only is he so smart, but look how he just handles people so deftly. His teachings are proclaimed. He's marketing his brand. And the world is happy to market his brand. CNN is happy to promote Rob Bell. Because in promoting Rob Bell, they're dissing the church. They're dissing Christ. And Christ isn't being exalted. Jesus' person works not central to his message. Sure, he might mention Christ. He might even talk about how Christ sacrificed his life for a good cause. But he's not all wisdom. He's not the mystery of God. You see, Paul's not present with the Colossian believers to take on these charlatans face to face. Paul could debate them, but not everybody can debate like Paul. And not everybody has to debate like Paul. Remember, Paul's in prison at this writing. He can't vis physically visit uh, this church and help them, but he's written this letter. And this letter is proof of his love for them. It's proof of his struggle on their behalf. Has anyone written you a five-page letter, that's what Colossians basically is, a five-page letter recently to encourage you to fight the good fight and keep the faith that was theologically perfect. 
Okay, theologically perfect, that, that, like, nobody's hands are going to go up. But even close to that, that was just theologically sound. Anybody written a letter to you recently, a five-page letter, something kind of like what Paul writes here that took so much effort to, to be careful and exact? But what if they did? It would be proof of their love and concern for you, right? You'd be like, this person is really concerned for me. They're concerned for my spiritual state. You see, Paul is absent in the flesh, he says, but he's with them in the spirit. Not in some mystical way that people might take some crazy uh, charismatic way. He prays for them and is part of them because they're part of Christ. The same spirit is indwelling them that's indwelling Paul, the brothers and sisters in Christ. And he rejoices at seeing their good order and their firmness of faith in Christ because he's part of them. These two terms, good order and firmness of faith, are military terms. Here they're simply speaking of solid Christian conduct and the steadfastness of their faith in Christ. They're not wavering yet. They're standing the ground. Their ranks have not broken. They are holding the line. Good soldiers in Christ. That's what he's saying. So Colossians, this, this letter, is different than, say, Galatians. Because in Galatians, the church had already caved. They had already embraced the false teaching of the Judaizers, if you remember. They had broken ranks. They failed to stand their ground. And so Paul, in the book of Galatians, he's calling them to repentance. That's what he's doing. That's not the case here. And so that's why if you read this, you know, similar teachings in different ways, but there's a different flavor to it, and that's why. Here, Paul knows of the temptation and what could happen, what he's concerned that might happen, so he writes this letter to strengthen them to stand firm. But they haven't broken ranks yet. Again, he wants to see them mature in Christ because that's what's best. He wants them to stay where they're at. Don't go after these charlatans. Uh, as, as Wink puts it, the epistle is a vaccination against heresy, not an antibiotic for those already afflicted. And then these days of COVID, we all get that a little bit more, right? You get, you get a vaccination so that you don't get COVID. You haven't already got it, right? If you get the vaccination, theoretically. And, uh, but if you already get it, well, I don't even know if they have an antibiotic that they would give to you, but... You, you get the point. I think that's a helpful way to keep what's going on in these two books separated. If the Colossians, if those believers, listen to Paul's warnings and his admonitions and his exhortations here, then they're going to be fine. They're going to continue to stand firm. They'll keep growing and mature and so on. That's his expectation. But Paul strives for them. He doesn't let go and let God with them. He, he understands the Lord uses means, and this letter is one of the means God uses to grow his people. Paul strives to proclaim Christ in Christ alone. Again, let me talk to the parents here for a minute. We need to be careful with our children. What do we really want for our kids? We need to be careful not to give them plausible arguments. We need to be careful not to mix the truth with worldly wisdom. Our goals for them can't be mixed. Paul says here that what they really need is Christ. They don't need a six-figure job. They don't need clout and prestige. They don't need to be financially independent by the age of 35. They don't even need to be married and give you grandkids. They don't need the best liberal education that money can buy. They need wisdom. And Christ is wisdom. What they need is not to be led astray by all the charlatans in this world that are at just a click, 
click away on the internet. We need to make sure that they're not deceived by plausible arguments. We need to make sure that what we're, that what we're saying, what we're teaching that's coming out of our mouth is being backed up by how we're living. Our confessional theology needs to be mirrored with our praxology, as they say. So we must proclaim to them Christ. Highly exalt Christ's person and work. Not only in what we say, but also in how we live our lives. And this is really what we all need. It's really what our ministries need. Well, at the end of a documentary movie praising Rob Bell, Bell was asked what was the one thing he wanted people to know. And this was his response. What the modern world does is cut you off from depth, from fullness. The truth is everything you're working and striving for, you already have. So often we're working, grasping, striving to feel worthy enough when the good news is waiting for you that you are loved. But in all that, he doesn't say loved by who? By Jesus? He doesn't say. I mean, who is Jesus if the Bible isn't true? What Jesus are we talking about? The Jesus of your own imagination? And what is truth? What you feel? What's true for you? Rob Bell thinks it's unkind. He thinks he's being helpful not to be dogmatic on what the scriptures say. Whatever's true for you is true for you. He's not. Brothers and sisters, I'm confident that I'm going to continue to hear good things about you. You are in good hands. Like I said, I heard that over and over over the weekend. People tell me, we miss you guys. And and, and that's great. I want to hear that. I want to hear it because we miss you guys too. But then they would say, we miss you guys, but, you're in good, but we're in good hands. That just warms my soul. That, that encourages me so much. That is awesome. That, that's perfect. We miss you guys, but we're in good hands. Hallelujah. Because you guys are in good hands. I still cannot believe what a good fit the gangles are. I mean, it's, it's miraculous. I'm just like, Lord, you are, you are so kind. <clears throat> but although absent in flesh, we're with you in spirit. Not making myself a comparison to Paul. If you know me well, you know that that's not possible. But I'm just saying that we have an invested interest in this church. That should encourage you. There's other people outside of this local body that are rooting for you. And I look forward to rejoicing in seeing how you have grown in your love for Jesus Christ every time we come to visit. That's what I'm looking forward. But this is only going to happen if Christ remains the big deal of this church the big deal of your life, right? I mean, individuals make up the church. Pastors of the church aren't the church. They're part of the church. Jeff and Dan and Kyle and Neil and Wayne and Gary and Ann and everybody else. Their faith alone can't cause you to stand firm. So if if conservative politics takes central stage and Christ's person and work is moved to the back burner, then that zeal, that fire is going to wane. If if slick, rational, logical, theological arguments take center stage and Christ is left out of the conversation and and there's only a, a kind of stoic deism remaining, devoid of love, if if a desire to to be cool and loved by the world grabs your soul, or if you are distracted by pursuing the pleasures of this world and securing your own comfort in life 
If, you, if you're doing opposite of what Colossians 3 says, instead of setting your affections on things above, not on things of the earth, if you set your affections on things of the earth, then hearts are not going to be knit together in love and unity will take a hit. See, the knowledge of God's mystery is Christ and only in him is all wisdom and knowledge. And the same is true for us. I hope that when you hear about us and our ministries and what's going on in, in Louisville, Kentucky, I hope that you're encouraged by our zeal and our enthusiasm for Christ and his kingdom. This life is short. The older I get, the, the shorter that I'm going, it's getting, it's getting a lot shorter. One day, we're going to be in eternity, fellowshipping uninterrupted. We all look forward to that. But, but our firmness in faith and, and encouraging each other in the reports that we're hearing from each other is only going to happen if we too I'm talking about me and my family, if we keep Christ central in all that we do. It's so easy to get distracted in this life, isn't it? Man, it's so easy to get distracted in life. It's so easy to think that we need other things. It's so easy to just live for pleasure and the next fun thing. And so pray for us as we pray for you. God help us. Our aim must always be Christ. We must always be proclaiming Christ and exalting his person and work clearly, accurately, zealously. And so it's always Christ for all of us. If you hear me preaching something other than Christ, 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 please get in my business because if, if I hear anything other from you all, I'm gonna get in your business. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for Jesus. But Lord, we... We identify with the hymn writer who wrote, we are prone to wander. And so we're so thankful that we're not the ones that keep ourselves in Christ, but it's your spirit. We praise you for that. At the same time, that's our, our deepest and greatest desire. And you use means and you use each of us in each other's lives. So Lord, help us to be faithful hold each other accountable and follow Paul's example here. Our ministries would be characterized by pointing each other to Christ, that we might stand firm together in Christ, faithful to the end, that we all might hear from you, well done, good and faithful servant. To your glory and our extreme joy, amen.